Hey guys, welcome to the Fellowship Greenville Students Podcast. This week, Matt Densky continued our series, The Disruptor, talking about how Jesus disrupts our fear. We looked at Mark 4, verses 35 through 41, when the disciples are afraid of the storm and intimidated by Jesus. They were filled with great fear, no faith, and we still do the same today. Matt talked about some different ideas and culture that create fears and anxiety in us today and how we need to continually renew our minds, giving Jesus room to calm the storms in our own lives. Matt challenges us to limit the distractions, really understand who Jesus is, and change our fear into faith. We hope you're encouraged by this and enjoy this message. Guys, it is so good to see you all. My name is Matt Dinsky. I am the student pastor here at Fellowship Greenville. We love you. We're so happy you're here. We're thankful you're here. I want you to know that we believe you have a place to belong here. Uh, We are all about Jesus here. We believe he is the source of hope and life in this world, and uh, and we hope you come to that belief as well. But no matter where you're at on the spiritual journey or spectrum in life, it does not affect the fact that you belong here and you're loved here, and we are so thankful that you are with us tonight. Over the past few weeks, we've been in the midst of a series. Uh, we've, We've called it The Disruptor, and we are looking at Jesus. We believe that God, who is spiritual and um, this divine being, but he's spirit and not physical, at one point in history, a couple thousand years ago, decided to become physical, take on flesh, and became man and walked among us. His name was Jesus. We believe that God walked on earth for about three decades or so, taught us what uh, human life is actually supposed to look at, taught us what the love of God is actually supposed to be like, and also... Uh, conquered sin and death and defeated the forces of evil. So we believe, yeah, amen, Ginny Ann. So we believe that, that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so this series, The Disruptor, we've been looking at Jesus and how he's disrupted certain things since his presence here on earth a few thousand years ago, a couple thousand years ago, and how he still continues to disrupt and make waves and create ripples in the proverbial pond of our hearts, pond of our souls, so to speak. He is still at work disrupting certain things. And we're going to continue that story tonight. Uh, a, few, a few months ago, my oldest son and I, my oldest son is four years old, and we're watching TV together, and uh, we're watching Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, right? Yeah. Yeah. Some of you guys may, may still watch that show, apparently. You got, got a lot of hype over MMCH there. Wow. Um, so we're watching this episode, and, and this is not the first episode of Mickey Mouse Clubhouse we've ever watched. We've watched multiples. I actually hate that show because, yeah, because of the mystery item, and they're like, oh, toodles, and I just, I find that whole thing very annoying. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. So anyway, we're watching this episode. He's seen Mickey Mouse Clubhouse a number of times, but we've never seen this episode, and The premise of this episode is that a gorilla has escaped from the zoo. And and Mickey and Goofy, Minnie, Daisy, Donald, maybe even Petey, he was in on it too. All of them, all the characters, they all like rallied up in their cars and they're all like driving around town. They're trying to find this gorilla. And there's this one scene where Mickey is searching in like this shed behind a garage or something. And he's convinced the gorilla might be in there because they found footprints or something like that. And 
the music starts to get a little bit intense. Yeah, <laughs> wow. <laughs> this sermon has officially just become rated PG right now, right? I'm getting a little, I'm getting graphic. The music starts to build up. It becomes intense. You know how movies do and things like that, but it's, it's Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, so the intense music is like, like it's just, it's not like eerie or ominous or foreboding. It's just very, it's different, but there's a buildup. But anyway, this gorilla, the gorilla is up in the tree and he's watching Mickey below him. And I'll, I'll give it credit. The, the gorilla looks ticked off at the world. Like for some reason, the animators were like, kids show? Yeah, let's draw this terrifying like, like gorilla. So he's up there. And my son looks at me, and all of a sudden I noticed his body was tense, like he was just locked up. And he looks at me, very calm, trying to be like very cool. He looks at me and he says, Dad, Daddy, can we, can we watch something else? I know. I know, I was like. <laughs> and it's so hard in those moments because, you know, if you cater, if you cater to every fear, then, then that's not healthy either. But if you, if you don't listen to them in some of them, then that's not healthy. And so it's always this moment of discernment. And I thought in this one, you know what? Hey, buddy, absolutely, we can watch something else. So we, we changed it. No problem, right? M- months go by. Months go by. I tuck him in uh, for nap time, for his rest time. We have a ritual. We, we play together. We do all this stuff. And I tuck him in, and I'm leaving the room. And for those of you who have seen my son say goodbye to me, some of you on Sunday mornings when he comes in. It's, it's about 10,000 goodbye and I love yous back to back, and then it's finally the for real one. So it's like, goodbye, love you, goodbye, love you. So I'm literally backing out of his room. This is how, it, like, I have the door handle. I say, goodbye, love you, goodbye, love you, goodbye, love you. Like, I, goodbye, buddy, I love you, I love you, buddy, goodbye. Like, he's, it, this is our ritual, right? And then all of a sudden, we're, the door's about shut. And that's when I know, like, oh, I've got it. The door's about shut, and he says, daddy? It's like, oh. Well, that's different. Yeah, yeah, buddy. He says, can, can the gorilla get in? Now, this is months. Months have gone by since we watched Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. And so, like, I'm standing there like, a, like an ignoramus. Like, I'm scrounging like, gorilla. I'm like, did he play a game with, did he play a game with mommy? Like, did they do, like, what? Go, and, I, and so I go over to him, and I'm like, actually, he called it, and he, he said something weird. He was saying orangutan, but I knew he meant gorilla. It was so weird. He called it like a, a, a tangatang. I don't know what he said, but anyway, I'm like, where do you even know that word, dude? What are you, Nat Geo on the side over here? And I said, buddy, what, gorilla, what are you talking about? He goes, can the gorilla get in through the windows? Is it strong enough to break the windows? Lucas, never, never babysitting for me, ever. You just lost all credibility. Wow, could you imagine that scenario? This eight-foot-tall Austrian dude just told my son a rabid gorilla will break through and murder him. Oh, my gosh. Man, nothing, hey, nothing like brutal truth for a four-year-old. Yes, he can, in fact. He will break in. He will break you. My goodness. (laughs) So Trent asks me, wow, dude. Trent asks me, can the gorilla get in? Lucas, 
And I told him, I said, buddy, what, what, what gorilla? And he, he explained, like, if the gorilla climbs up in the tree, can he break my windows? And he does. He's got a tree right outside his window. And so I started putting two and two together. I was like, buddy, no. Like, no. These windows are super strong. And he's like, well, how? And I'm like, daddy couldn't even break through these windows. Like, they're so strong. They're so strong. And also, buddy, also, buddy, gorillas don't live in our neighborhood. Like, let me just clear that one out for you. Like, they're in the zoo, right? And he's like, well, could they break out of the zoo? Lucas, don't answer. And I'm like, I'm like, no, no, buddy, they can't, right? But he got this, he got this, this, this seed, this seed planted in his mind from Mickey Mouse Clubhouse of all places that it is possible for gorillas to break out and hide in neighborhoods and climb trees. And it looked angry in the show. And so he was one, he translated that into real life. Can that happen to me? He was terrified. He was terrified. And I had to, I had to talk to him like, no, buddy, that, that cannot happen. You're okay. You're safe. In fact, that's one of the things I've learned. It's been interesting to watch my four-year-old develop over time because when they're young, they're not afraid of anything. And then all of a sudden, they start to learn, and so they become afraid of physical things. Like, I don't want to fall and get hurt. And then as they get older, they, be, they become afraid of things that, that could never happen, right? Like imaginary things. And it's been interesting to watch that progression. And so I'm learning as a dad how to coach him through some of those and how to help him grow and not just be struck with fear his entire life, but also cater to him because he's a four-year-old, right? Like, and, and so it's just been a really interesting thing. Fear plays this incredible role in our life. And so, I mean, I'll, let's go ahead and throw up the tagline. I think Jesus wants to disrupt our fear. I think part of why Jesus came and part of what he modeled is to disrupt our fear. In fact, if you dig into the, the, the entire Bible, this is the most frequent command in the entire Bible, is do not be afraid. Which is really interesting, because you'd think, like, maybe the most frequent command would maybe revolve around love, or maybe revolve around, like, worship, worship God, or, or give him, you know, praise, or something like that, and that one's up there as well, that's one of the top ones as well. Or you might think the, the most frequent command might have to deal with, like, a sin, or something like that, and no. It, it has to do with fear, which is really interesting. Do not be afraid is a constant theme throughout the entire Bible. And if we're honest, not on a four-year-old level, like my son, but if we're honest, we have gorillas in our lives as well, right? And this is what fear does. This is what fear does. Fear gives life to the what-ifs, by stealing life from the what is. That's what fear does. It gives life to the what ifs by stealing life from the what is. Because the reality is you can't project imaginary scenarios in your mind without expending energy to do that. And where does that energy come from? It comes from your current state of mind. You're, 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 beginning, to, you're beginning to project onto tomorrow what you have the capacity for today. And so many of you and us who walk around exhausted in life, who walk around just feeling like so sluggish and you just don't have the capacity or energy and you're always just so like, I don't know, downtrodden and you're always living in fear and, and, and anxiety is a synonym of this word, right? Or worrying. And those have different nuances, but these are all in the same family. And, 
this is part of it, is you're, you're projecting into tomorrow what you were designed to handle today, and you can't maintain that for very long, and so it exhausts you, it depletes you. You're giving life to what ifs by robbing life from what is. You're living in fear, and so simultaneously, anxieties and worry and panic are going through the roof, and you're creating gorillas in the trees outside your home because you saw a cartoon version of it, Right? Like, this is what fear does. It projects reality to things that are not true. And so then all of a sudden, you begin to live into that reality. And you begin to look around, and you're like, oh my gosh, there are gorillas everywhere. Right? And in fact, they're not. But you've given so much energy and time to it. You've projected so much emotion into it. You don't know how to get out of it and actually back to what's real. Fear is giving life to what ifs by taking life from what is. I think Jesus wants to disrupt our fear. Most frequent command in the Bible, do not be afraid. Is it actually possible to live life without fear? Now, before you take this to the extreme of like fearlessness, that's not what I'm talking about. You will have moments in life when you are afraid, and that's a good thing. You should experience fear on some primal level, okay? If you're in the woods and a grizzly is charging you, I want you to feel fear so that you will, well, you're not supposed to run from a grizzly, but you, get, you catch my point, okay? Like, so I'm not talking about fearlessness. What I'm talking about is courage in the face of fear and understanding that you have victory over fear. It doesn't have to be a permanent reality in your life. But so many of us feed it, we can't imagine life without it. In fact, the numbers are out and they're staggering. This generation, the room I'm talking to, anyone born after the year 2000? Everyone, okay? This room. Anxiety, worry, and fear, higher numbers than any generation ever before you. Ever. The most medicated generation of all time. And yet we're still struggling with anxiety, fear, and worry more than ever. Something's not working. I don't know if you guys have realized that yet. Like the way we're approaching life isn't actually fixing the problem. Something's not working. Something's broken. Jesus wants to disrupt fear. Remove fear entirely? No. Like that's impossible. But he wants, he wants us to live in a way where faith in him equates to victory over moments of fear. It doesn't mean you'll never face fear again. It doesn't mean you'll never be worried again. But there are ways that you can create infrastructures, codes in yourself to where you would believe in Jesus more than believe in the fear. But it's very hard to do. And you've got to unlearn a few habits, I think. So let's jump into a text tonight. This is a really, really interesting text for a lot of reasons. Mark chapter 4. That's where we're going to be tonight. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. Jesus has been doing ministry, public ministry. He started at the age of 30, which was cultural. That was traditional for Jewish rabbis to step into public teaching around the age of 30. And he did. He's been doing ministry for about a year and a half. Year and a half. So he has a reputation. He's already displayed many, many things. He's cast out demons. He's healed 
uh, people with leprosy. And this is, I'm only going by Mark's gospel so far. If you want to expand it to all the gospels, he's done way, way more in that year and a half. But Mark's gospel, he's, he's cast out demons uh, from people. He's healed a man with leprosy. He's healed a paralytic man. He's healed a man with a withered hand. He's taught parables. He's taught with authority. He's done many things in this year and a half. So his reputation is growing and the crowds are following him and his disciples are starting to get the notion that maybe this guy is the Messiah, the chosen one of God, and maybe we can believe in him as that, as Messiah, the one who was to come. All these prophecies in the Old Testament. So they have a good understanding of who he is so far. But in the passage we're about to read, they're about to be blown away. They don't know what to, they don't know what to do with the Jesus they're about to encounter, even though they've been with him for about a year and a half now. So let's start. Mark 4, verse 35. On that day, so Jesus, if you want the context, just back up. He's been teaching parables all day. All day. Parable of the sower, parable of the mustard seed. He's been teaching all day. And Jesus uh, was teaching from the water's edge because um, more than likely in a boat itself, because volume travels across water much better than it does on land. So Jesus kind of created a natural amphitheater with geography and water. So he's teaching from a boat. He's teaching to these crowds, and he's doing this all day. And so uh, that's where we're picking up. On that day, on that very day, when evening came, so the sun's setting, it's around 6 p.m., it's getting dark, he says to his disciples, he says to them, Let us go across to the other side. Let's go to the other side of the lake. Sea of Galilee is a really, really large lake, large, large body of water. Even with a motorized boat today, it takes a long time to cross it. And leaving the crowd, they took him uh, with them in the boat, just as he was. And so, in other words, it's saying Jesus was probably already in the boat teaching, and they just hopped in with him, and, and they went. And other boats were with him. So, so it's not just Jesus and his disciples. There seems to be like a, a, a fleet here, an armada, right? Like there's just a lot of boats with Jesus. And a great windstorm arose. We don't know how far into the voyage. We don't know how far into the trek. But a great windstorm arose, which happened often on the Sea of Galilee. It sits below sea level. And so these tremendous wind currents would come over this, these mountain ranges and just like rush right into the Sea of Galilee. It was this bowl, and it just caught all sorts of weather. This windstorm began um, to, to rise up, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, I want to be honest with you guys about something. I, I love uh, backpacking. I love hiking. No one else. Okay. Uh, I love that. Oh, wow. Thank you. Man. Uh, I've encountered... Many things out in the wilderness, as, as one does. Some of you guys know some of my stories. One time, a schizophrenic bipolar man saved my life. That's always a great one. Macaroni Mike, wherever you're at. Uh, like, that is not a person you want to meet in the middle of the woods. And I met him. Uh, yeah, like, I've had, I've had two black bears come into my sight when I was asleep, just right under the stars, swipe my pillow from right under my head. Uh, well, it was a duffel bag, but nothing was in it. But they swiped it right from under my head. I woke up to, and the like one of the, 3 a.m., pitch black, I, I, I turned my headlamp on. One of the bears is from me to the guitar, right? Like, I mean, I've had some pretty fun experiences in the wilderness, but all of those were exciting to me. Like, none of them were, like, really terrifying, except, I want to be honest, when I'm caught in severe weather, I get, ter- I get terrified. I get scared. 
And the reason is because I feel like no matter what I do, I cannot control the outcome. Like with bears, somewhere in the back of my mind, I imagine some like Rambo-like moves that I have deep within me that would be able to like, like break a neck of a 600-pound muscular bear, which is totally a lie. But in my mind, I'm confident in it, right? Like, oh, PCK, you hop on with a handkerchief, you strangle them out, choke, hold them, right? Like rear naked choke, take a knife, can't, like done. Like it's in my head, it's all there. But weather, I can't control You can try to find shelter, you can build something, you can tuck into a tent, you can do whatever you want. But at the end of the day, I've been in some very, very, very scary weather patterns that have shook me. I mean, really, like, terrified me. And I completely understand the fear that these disciples have. Like, imagine you're in this boat, and it's nighttime. And you hear this wind building up. Like, you hear it. Boat starts to get a little, little rocky. It progresses, and the wind becomes violent. You let down the sails. You don't want to get carried away. And the wind is just blow, like blowing. It's loud. It becomes deafening. If you've ever been in a storm so loud that you have to scream at the top of your lungs just to be heard, that's a scary thing. It's not comfortable. When you're out and, and, and like you have no home to retreat into, you don't have a car to get, like it's very scary. These guys are out on the sea, it's pitch black, they hear the wind, they're like, oh no. And these, a lot of these guys are professional fishermen, and they're still struck with fear. And then all of a sudden the waves build up, and the waves begin to crash, just crashing in, winds blowing. And it says that the waves began to fill the boat. I mean, this, this sucker's about to capsize, it's about to sink. This is not just a storm, this is not just rain, this is a, a hurricane force storm, this is gale force winds, this boat is going down. And it's interesting because the only mention of the other boats with Jesus were at the beginning of the path, we don't even know what happened to them. Are they just sunk? Like, are they at the bottom of the ocean, Ariel's like digging up some, some stuff to put on her shelves right now, you know what I mean? Like, we don't know, maybe they turned back, we don't know. That's a Little Mermaid reference for some of you who are like... Post, post, yeah, you're born after 2000. I get it. Some of you guys may be like, Ariel. Yeah, she's a. Let me, let's just get this, let's just get this straight. I was born before you. I heard the name first. I win, okay? Trump card. It's Ariel, okay? Had a crush on her when I was young. It's Ariel. I had a pencil and she was the eraser. It's Ariel, okay? So these guys are in this storm, and they're terrified. It's pitch black, right? Like, they, it's not like, oh, we can see everything. It's, and that would still be scary, but it's pitch black. They're at the mercy of the wind. The boat is rocking. Waves are crashing in. They're hanging on for dear life. It is so dangerous. It is so possible to get swept out right now and into the black depths of the water. No one would ever know. It is terrifying, and they are scrambling, and the noise is rising, and the fear is rising, and it is so chaotic, and the boat is filling up, and it's beginning to sink, and it's like, dude, this is our only hope. Like, this buoyant object is it. This is all we have one chapter later mark chapter 6 the disciples are in a similar storm on the sea of uh, sea of galilee and it lasts for a minimum of nine hours maximum of 12 hours because mark actually records a time log in that so it's not just like oh 20 minute oh that would have been scary but no i'm t- this could have been hours 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 and you're just at the mercy of the wind pitch black you have no clue where the other boats are you can barely hang on yourself water's coming in knocking you down salty all in your eyes you can barely see you're just hoping and clinging to dear life and the disciples get scared 
They're afraid. And so they begin to realize, where is Jesus? Where is that dude? Right? Like they're looking around. They find him snoozing. Like what in the name of me? They find him snoozing. Verse 38, but he was asleep. He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke. Dude, you got some mad snoozing skills. Like this isn't some yacht that can just withstand a storm and remain steady. Like Jesus is in the stern of this little podunk dinky boat getting tossed all It's flooding. Like homie's covered by two feet of water. Well, I guess not. Maybe he just floats on top of it since he can walk. I don't know what's going on really. But dude is just down there asleep. And they wake him up. Which, if you can imagine waking up, that'd be a scary thing. You ever wake up someone from a deep sleep? It's terrifying. Like, how are they going to respond right now? They're about to slap me across the face right now, dude. Dude, they go, down, they go down to the stern. They go down the stern, and they're not happy. They're not happy. They woke him up, and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Don't you care that we're dying? Man, do you not even look around? Like, this is a, they're, they're, like, at the Look at the language. They're upset with Jesus, and in some ways I think they're trying to rebuke Jesus. And homie, don't play that. You don't rebuke God. They, they point a finger. Do you not even care? Man, we're dying out there. Don't you care? Jesus wakes up. He awoke. He rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. So, so if, you dig in, if you dig into some of the original language here, the Greek, I mean, it, it seems to be this, it didn't take half an hour for this storm to fizzle out. It, it, it seems to just be this calm. Like in an instant, this storm dissipated. So if you can imagine that noise, like waves crashing in, toss, and Jesus said, peace, be still. Just He looks at the disciples. He's like, oh, you got a rebuke for me? I got a rebuke for you. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? Now listen, when we approach the scriptures, we don't just want to consider what they say. We want to submit ourselves to what they say. And I invite you to apply the words of Jesus to your heart in this moment. If you struggle with fear, if you struggle with anxiety, if you struggle with worrying, if you make gorillas exist outside of your bedroom window, if you give, if you give energy to what ifs by robbing from what is, and there's a variety of reasons for the why behind all that, but I want you to ask yourself the question, is Jesus speaking to me in this? Do you have no faith? I mean, in other words, he's kind of pointing back like a year and a half. You've seen me heal the lepers. You've seen me cast out demons. Clearly, I have spiritual authority in this world. You've seen me heal people with lame hands and lame legs. You've seen me teach with authority. You've seen me rebuke the Pharisees. You've seen crowds follow me. Do you still not have enough faith in me to know that I would have handled this? Do you still have no faith? 
Interestingly, verse 41, they were filled with great fear. But it's a different word in the original language. It's a different word in the Greek. New Testament's written in Greek. First, they're afraid of the storm. The second fear, they're afraid of him. Like, they're still afraid after he calms everything, but it's no longer about the storm. They're afraid. If you literally translate this word, it translates to intimidated. They look at him and they're like, whoa, dude. They're filled with great fear and they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, we need to get our heads in, some, in a Jewish way of thinking real quick because these guys are young Jewish guys. They're steeped in Old Testament. They're steeped in Jewish ways of thinking. I want you to know, in the Old Testament, the only person to ever, ever control the weather or command the weather is God. Ever. Now, there are some stories where, like, prophets, like Elijah, would pray for rain or pray for the rain to stop or pray for fire to fall or things like that. But he asked God to do those things. He didn't control them himself. And here in this boat, you don't see Jesus stop and pray, Father, would you command the wind to stop? No, 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 no. Jesus stands up, stop. Stop blowing. Be still. He speaks to the weather. And in a Jewish way of thinking, only God does that. So when the disciples see Jesus do that, the reason they're intimidated is because in their minds it just clicked. Now we thought he might be Messiah, one who is from God. We didn't know he might be God. I mean, they're kind of, who is this? Like they're stunned. They don't know what to do with that. Why are you afraid? Do you still lack faith? Jesus is displaying in this moment, I'm God. And if God is with you, what room does fear have in your life? That's what Jesus is saying. Now, this passage can, can, can be allegorized and paralleled to our lives, certainly, and there is an application point in here for sure that can Jesus calm the storms of your life? 100%. Absolutely. But sometimes we miss what I think might be even the deeper application, which is Jesus may calm the storms, but he will never cease to be God. Like the main thrust of this passage is not that Jesus calmed the storm. It's that God was with them. And when we redefine our perspective that Jesus isn't just some addition into our lives and not some genie that we rub the lamp, but he's God himself, it changes our entire perspective about life. Now listen, I, I want to, <clears throat> can, I, can I get just real with you guys for a second? Like on a, thank you, one person. Do I have permission from everyone else? Yeah. Okay, good, 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 good. Let me get, let me get real for you for, with a second. I've given my life to this generation. I love you guys. I believe huge things for you guys. I think the next big revival in the kingdom of God is going to happen with this generation. I do. I talk to adults about it all the time. I brag on this generation all the time. I believe in this generation. I try to empower this generation. I, I'm, I'm a fan. But we have to be honest with ourselves about a few things. And I, I've been in student ministry 14 years. I've been in it a while. I've met with a lot of students one-on-one, -on -one, done a lot of counseling. And I hear often the desire for peace, which is not a bad desire. It's not a bad desire at all. But here's one of the things I've noticed, if I may speak into this generation, 
Here's one of the things I've noticed, is that oftentimes we create the very circumstances in our lives that we're asking God to remove. But we're unwilling to stop creating them. That's the problem. It's one thing to find yourself in a mess and be like, oh God, how did I get here? Would you help me? Would you deliver me? But it's another thing to be like, yeah, I'm not going to change my lifestyle, but God, I want you to give me peace within this lifestyle. But the choices that we're making are the things that are causing us fear in the first place. You guys understand what I'm saying? Like we're creating our own problems and unwilling to change what we're doing and then asking God to do something about it, but we're not giving him any allowance or room in our lives to do it. So I, I want to, like, l- let me just shoot straight here. I'm not, like, anti-technology. You'll never hear me, like, preach against it, but I want to I be honest about something. This guy right here is one of the most dangerous things in the world. For a few reasons. Now, I know I just sounded like the oldest person you've ever heard. Oh, there's goes the <laughs> This is a destroy your life, kids. Right? Like, I get it. I get it. But you've got to understand, this is a tool that can enhance your life, but not a tool to, to control your life. And for many of us, we have no infrastructure of boundaries or self-control with this, and therefore it is being contr- you are being controlled by it rather than you controlling this thing. Let me give you a few, a few scenarios. May I? Okay. You guys aren't talking anymore, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Um, one of the dangers, thank you, one of the dangers about living in our, in our day and age, and you've got to be aware of this, you have to know, we have access to information on a global level and an immediate level. In other words, in other words you are a part of a, of a global chat, a global newspaper that's updating itself by the second. You don't have the capacity to filter through the amount of information you receive in a day, let alone an hour. Your brain wasn't designed to do so. Do you know researchers have come out and said the average child today, average child today, struggles with anxiety on a similar level that in the 1950s a psychiatric ward patient struggled with. Someone's been admitted in 1950s and a child has that same level of anxiety today. You can't filter through the amount of information you get. And, and trust me, technology companies don't care about um, protecting your very impressionable brains. In fact, technology is being designed today to actually distract you and addict you. Some of it's accidental, right? Like some of it's just inherent to it. But other things, scrolling, the like button, notifications, things like that were designed to continually keep your attention here rather than out here. And when you receive information on an immediate level, like it's happening up to date, you can't filter out that, and sooner or later, you start to see the world full of 800-pound gorillas everywhere, everywhere. The two most vulnerable times for your brain, brain scientists, researchers have come out and said the two most vulnerable times for your brain are right before you go to bed and right when you wake up. For most of us, we fall asleep with this in our hands or right next to our beds, and we wake up first thing and look at this. So you're falling asleep, Putting in your brain, maybe you're binge watching a show on Netflix or something like that. Maybe it has like borderline softcore pornography, who knows, or violence or something like that, or crude jokes or whatever. Or maybe you're in a conflict with a friend and you're texting and there's gossip or whatever. That's the last thing going into your brain. 
And the first thing you wake up, you turn on your phone, you've got some notifications, another corona outbreak, Donald Trump tweeted this, it outraged someone, that person's been assassinated, we might go to war. Every single day, think about it, you have structured the most vulnerable times of your day to filter immediate information into your brain. It has literally reshaped the way you think. It is no surprise, like no one's baffled by the fact that we're struggling with anxiety and depression and suicide and worry at an astronomical rate. No one's baffled as to the why. We're all trying to figure out how do we actually combat this if we're unwilling to make the changes in our life when we're addicted to this. Just got a notification, right? Doesn't stop. We're receiving bad news all day long. And when that becomes your worldview, you begin to think the world is going to hell. Like everything's falling apart. We're about to just hit the end times. Like it's about to be a Mad Max utopian world. Everyone's like got to fend for themselves. I'm about to start eating lizards to survive. Like, right? Like we get in these, I'm creating gorillas because we're seeing bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. And in the most impressionable times of the day, we allow our brain to be influenced by this because we don't have the self-control or maybe the knowledge about how influential this has become. Your generation is the first generation ever to be born into internet. You're known as digital natives. You didn't have to learn it, you just grew up in it. Every generation prior had to learn it. This is becoming, this is becoming the controlling factor for your generation. Immediate information is rewiring our brains on a massive scale. Secondly, this is isolating us from true community. Because we've convinced ourselves that connectivity is the same thing as community, and it's not. We don't know how to have true friendships anymore. My wife and I, we went out for a Valentine's Day date. Uh, Friday. Yeah, that's my boo. Mmm, girl. She's 36 weeks pregnant and looking good. No, she's not 36. I don't know what I'm talking about. She's 28. I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, <laughs> math. <laughs> but she looking, she looking fine. Um, I love people watching. I love it. It's kind of creepy, but I do it anyway. I don't care. I couldn't help but notice Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. The ratio of tables where people were on dates and were eating their food like this. Making a quick comment. Uh -huh. <laughs> the fettuccine is good. <laughs> right? Like it's so normal. We've replaced community with connectivity. A synthetic platform through a digital outlet is not the same as a community and a friendship. And while we may be connected to the world in an immediate level, we're very disconnected from those right in front of us. We've lost the art of conversation. Think about it. We don't love awkward silence, do we? Waiting rooms, red lights, pumping gas, things like that. Oh, what do I do? Okay, I'll just distract myself. We don't know how to be in the moment of silence. We don't know what that feels like. We've lost that. Social media, oh, social media offers three lies that have convinced this generation that it is worth its time. The first lie is you can put your attention anywhere you want, and that's appealing because you get bombarded with information all day long. So, wow, I can focus my attention exactly on what, well, that's appealing to me, right? The second lie is you can say something and you'll always be heard. That's very appealing. 
And the third lie is you can edit your life. And so, but therefore it becomes very disingenuous, becomes unauthentic. Because you're faking experiences just so that you have something to share. Why do you share? Because you feel like you've got to share to be connected with the world because deep down you know you're lonely and culture has convinced you you've got to buy into social media platforms just so that you can be connected to everyone else and doing what everyone else is doing. Meanwhile, it feels you more and more hollow and lonely than ever before. But then you think, well, I can't be lonely. I guess I just got to share more. So you fake more experiences, 12th selfie of the morning, full makeup, hashtag just woke up. No, you didn't, but you want to make it seem like you did so that your life is perfect, so that you can have something to share. Why? Because you want people to like that. It gives you endorphins. It makes you feel connected. It replaces community. And we've bought into that lie so much that now we're just faking experiences just so that we have something to share. It's an epidemic of loneliness. And we've bought in. Does that resonate? You guys understand what I'm saying? Okay. Third thing, third thing, um, we live a life of hurry. We live a life of hurry. And here's the deal. Any relationship on the planet requires two things to not just survive but thrive. Time and attention. My wife, my friends, I don't care who. Time and attention. If I don't have the time to invest or if I don't have the capacity to give it the attention it needs, it will not last, period, period. And so many of us do not prioritize our faith or Jesus in a way that would give him time or attention. He's an addition to our lives. It's almost like we've downloaded another app on our phone, right? He's an addition, but he's not our lives. So we don't give him time and attention. For a lot of us, the last time you even read a Bible verse was last Sunday when you came in here. But then you're wondering, man, why, is, why do I fear it? Why is my anxiety so high? Why do I worry about everything? Why do I make gorillas out of nothing? You have not created the room in your life to allow Jesus to step in in a way that could calm the storms. You stir the waters up again, and then you pray, Jesus, would you calm it? How about instead of the instead of continuing down this path and allowing yourself to be controlled by this and, and shaped by culture itself, because scripture talks all the time about renewing our minds, like living in this world but not being of it, renewing our minds, having a, a, a kingdom mindset in the midst of an earthly world. What if we made the changes necessary to actually give Jesus the room to calm the storms? I know it's a crazy thought, but it might mean you need to set some boundaries around that device in your pockets or hands right now. It might mean you need to put it to bed before you go to bed. It might mean you need to limit the number of hours. And look, I'm, I'm not coming from a place of judgment. I want you to know that. I struggle with it too. Like I, I've let time slip by. I'll be on something and be like, oh, an hour's gone by? Are you kidding? Like I'm there too. But I also know, because I've met with enough students, that when they come to me and they're like, dude, I just, I don't have time to like really seek Jesus. Okay, well, do you mind if I look at your screen time for a second? When we're 20, 25, 30, 40 hours a week of screen time, you have the time, you just don't have the desire, right? Jesus looks at his disciples why are you afraid? Don't you have faith? Have you still no faith? He displays for them, I'm God. 
Like only God can speak to the weather. Don't you have faith by now? Jesus may calm the storms of your life. He doesn't always. There are some people who believe in Jesus that go through terrible things. Sometimes even because they believe in Jesus. Because other people persecute them for that all around the world. But whether he calms the storm or not, the point of this passage is he never ceases to be God. And God is worth our faith. Faith is the opposite of fear. And if you live in a world where your mentality and your worldview is that there are gorillas existing outside of every window and they're about to come through and I'm just so scared I don't know what to do with that, I think it's twofold. I think part of it is maybe you don't see Jesus for who he truly is. God, because if God's asleep on the boat, ain't nothing going to happen. I'll tell you that. But the other part of it might be, not only do you, maybe you don't see Jesus for who he is, but maybe you don't even give, give the margin in your life for God to work. It's hard to allow Jesus to work when all we do is invite him into crisis, but never pursue him in the comfort. You know what I'm saying? And I love you guys, man. But it breaks my heart that anxiety and worry and panic and fear and depression and suicide are increasing at astronomical rates. But it seems like, it seems like there, there's, there's no front runners of your generation saying, hey, maybe it's not just because coincidence, maybe because of the certain habits in our life, access to information on a global scale that we do nothing with in terms of filtering, disconnecting from people around us, but connecting digitally and synthetically and calling that friendships. Living life from one thing to the next, just multitasking everything, constant hurry, committing, overcommitting. We weren't designed to live that way. Sometimes we create the storms. And then we're like, Jesus, where are you at, dude? Do we see Jesus for who he is? God. He's in the boat. He loves you. The reason he rebukes them is not because they ask for help. That'd be fine. The reason he rebukes them is because they're like, don't you care that we're dying? Clearly, they didn't understand who God was. Yes, I care. I love you. Of course I care. Don't you know who I, don't you have faith in me by now? They allow themselves to get distracted with circumstances, created gorillas. Let's limit the distractions and give Jesus room in our lives so that we can understand more of who he is, God in the flesh, lover of our souls, protector, commander of the weather. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Um. <clears throat> Man, I pray that we would love you more than anything. It's easy to love you as a something in our lives or a, in addition to our lives, but I pray you'd, you'd be the core. I don't want this generation, I don't want this room, I don't want these students to live in fear. It's possible 
to not. It's possible to live in victory and hope and courage. But Jesus, it doesn't happen accidentally. I pray, I pray over this room, over this generation. That in the midst of the storms, we would remember we have God. I pray that we would not create the storms ourselves. But that we would actually give you room in our lives to be the main thing. We can talk all day about our intentions, our intentions, our intentions. But at the end of the day, I pray that our actions would give you the room that you need. Jesus, I believe in this generation. I believe great things for this generation. And I know you do too. So I pray you would stir up and rise up. Leaders, give vision, give courage, give victory. For those in this room, we ask in your name, Jesus. Amen.